You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk markets here in a moment with Dale Dirkholz of Grain Cycles. Then we're going to dive into the machinery space. Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC and the Moving Iron Podcast will be joining us. He's going to share what he's watching here as we get deeper into summer with regard to machinery availability. And then in segment three, we're going to revisit a conversation we had with Dr. Steve Meyer from Partners in Production Agriculture. The hog industry has seen margins absolutely absolutely deteriorate over the past six months. And Steve puts the losses in perspective for us here in segment three. Before we jump into all of that, however, let's take a look at the markets and the grains are up to start the day. Corn up three to five cents. Soybeans really rolling. Old crop up 19 to 21. New crop up 17 cents. Wheat also finding some mixed trade. Chicago up hard red and spring, both unchanged or lower on the day. Joining us to discuss these issues now is Dale Durkles of Grain Cycles. Dale, Thanks for talking to us today. Hey, it's always good and fun to talk to you. See what the latest is. How's the pineapple crop in Iowa doing? Well, I mean, it is getting pineapple Dale, this dryness is a concern. Of course, you're in Illinois. We're seeing this dryness expand into the eastern Corn Belt. How do things look around you? Uh, actually, okay. You know, and the one thing that, that kind of masks some of the moisture deficits we have in places is that we haven't been tremendously warm yet either. Seasonally, that's part of it. But temps have been on the cool side, just like uh, the other night. We had a, a low here in central Illinois, below 50 in the middle of June. <laughs> you know, it's 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 been on the cool side. So that that helps keep the stress level on the crops down somewhat, but certainly the, the lack of rain doesn't help. No, no, it doesn't. And that lack of rain, Dale, seems to be catching the market's attention. We had crop condition ratings out yesterday. We're seeing some green in the screens today. I assume those good to excellent categories continue to fall off in corn and soy. Well, they did. You know, they were down a little bit more yesterday in the corn in particular than what people expected. I think they were expecting 62% down a couple of ticks, and they were down three at 61. Um, Historically, over the years, I've never gotten too excited about week-to-week changes in those numbers because they can be just a little bit elusive at times. But I do kind of keep a tack on on the trend in them, and certainly, you know, the trend in the numbers when you look at them, good to excellent on the corn, of course, we've only got like three or four weeks to go, you know, it's been down. So you you're, you are a little concerned about what's going on out there. Yeah, that concern is twofold, of course, Dale. I mean, what's happening out there in the growing region and what's going to happen with prices if this rain should start to materialize? How are you managing some of this new crop risk in corn and soy? Well, it's present time here, and, and part of this goes back to some of my ways of looking at the market you know in early june uh i was looking for a weekly low to come in and beans a timing weekly low there 32 weeks corn we were actually a little overdue for for a 40 week low in in the corn market here back in may so 
I saw a chance where the, the trend could turn a little bit higher. You didn't know why, didn't know what, but at least a little bit up. And so I'm loving the market just have a little bit of breathing space right now, especially with the corn market itself having jumped over the 50-day moving average. But, you know, the real question will come into play when I get up into some price levels like, and I'm looking at new crop, uh, 585, 85 D's corn. Can we punch through there if that? Then we could see something close to six. And beans, you know, I think, you know, you've got a, a path that says we can get somewhere up into uh, around $13 maybe on November futures before we need to get too anxious. But at that point, I think it probably says I need to start playing a little defense, whether it's using a bear put or some kind of an option strategy. Uh, because if rains do start to materialize, we can still have huge crops in corn and beans. Dale, I want to ask you about playing a little defense. You mentioned you're watching that 580 north of that, maybe the $6 level in corn, 13 in soybeans. If we are to get to those levels, or if the markets trade to those levels here in the new crop, how far out are you going to be hedging? Are you looking at all at 25 or 24 or 25 crop yet? Uh, 25, not so much. And basically because it just gets awful thin out in there at this point, I think most of your attention needs to be focused on the 23 crop. And maybe then when I start doing some hedging, and I really haven't spent much time looking at 24 numbers just yet or prices I'm speaking of. But once I start the, the ball game and doing some 23, uh, crop again, you know, there was an opportunity back in the winter to get some hedges on new corn, new beans and, or cash sales, whatever the case may be. Um, but where we're at now, we get up in there this time around, especially this time of year. Then I'll, once I trigger out some more 23 sales, I would take a look maybe at looking at 24 and see what's available out there and try to figure out is it really worthwhile to take a position or not. Maybe maybe corn more so than beans because in corn I have a 24 to 26 month low coming in 2024. So, you know, it says, you know, my, my mental mindset somewhat is on, on a negative base on a longer haul right now. Well, I mean, that certainly seems to make sense, Dale. The, the bearish attitude is pretty much everywhere in the grains here. We did get some news this morning from the BLS. Inflation numbers continue to come down. Rumors are the Fed's going to pause their interest rate hiking regime. Dale, would that be a good move? Have we beat inflation here in this uh, current market? No. How's that for a quick answer? <laughs> that is a quick answer, Dale, but I need you to expand on a little bit. What, what would be wrong well, if the Fed were to pause their interest rate hikes uh, You know, this week? Well, I think the Fed's going to pause. And my no is in response, have we beat inflation? No, we have not beat inflation. The Fed's going to pause because, you know, with the inflation numbers as they are, are likely to pause anyway. They really don't have a reason to raise rates this month. They can put it off for another month and see where the next round of inflation and economic numbers come into play. Uh, and as long as things stay a little benign on inflation, as long as economic numbers stay a little bit weak, the Fed's likely to be a little tolerant to, to not raising rates anymore. But I think the key cornerstone of all this and the one area I kind of keep an eye on is is still uh, the energy sector at this particular juncture. You know, 
they've been rather volatile. We were down into the low 60s again yesterday, West Texas crude, or the high 60s in West Texas crude. You know, if we ever get a sustained move up, you know, you got to be a little bit worried that, you know, inflation can come creeping back into this mix relatively easily. And I think that's a concern that the Fed has at this juncture. And, you know, we know Saudi Arabia here in the last week has said, you know, they're going to go it alone and maybe cut their production a little bit and if they go and do that follow through with that that will that will likely tighten up world energy enough to uh to give lift back into into the energy sector again and if we see the energy sector start to to move upwards uh, at this point in time other things will follow other things will follow. Dale, prescient advice there. Crude oil today up 250. July kissing that $70 mark. Folks, we've been talking with Dale Dirkholz of Green Cycles. And Dale, thanks so much for joining us here on AOA. Good talking to you, Mike. Folks, stick around. We're going to dig into the machinery space, both new and used, with Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S., so trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world that in 2021, Beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion. Ralph, that's a huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023? Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they, they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. Pork products are moving well. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next monthly grind on AOA. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. 
And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to AOA. We're going to be talking, hopefully, here shortly with Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC. But while we work to get Casey lined up, we do have an update on a story that we've been talking about for quite a while here on the AOA show, and that is the Federal Milk Marketing Update. We've seen a lot of announcements from the National Milk Producers Federation about this issue and finally have a date. USDA has set August 23rd as the date for the hearing to revise the federal milk marketing order. So this is the next step in that FOMO update. And as it gets closer, we'll have an update for you as we learn more. But right now, we're going to bring our focus back to the dirt. We're going to talk equipment. Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC and the Moving Iron Podcast joins us here on AOA. Casey, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. I appreciate it, Mike. How you been, bud? Hey, not too bad at all, Casey. I continue to hear stories out on the countryside of strong, strong demand for uh, for farm equipment. What are you seeing in the data? Does that strength continue? Is it uh, comparable to last year? Uh, yeah, I think we're still seeing some some demand signal out there for equipment. Nothing like it's been in the past. I think a lot of that was driven by just on-farm income and what we saw there and then supply chain um, with folks just trying to get what they needed to get updated. <clears throat> but it's still out there. Um, on the flip side of that, we're starting to see some equipment um, find a more permanent home on the dealer's lot than we've seen in the past. So we are starting to see some equipment pile up in some categories. If you look at combines especially, uh, and you start looking at where we were in 2020 as far as overall market uh supply goes, uh, it, it's pretty much back to that same number. So um, not everything is, is flying off the shelf, but still high demand for tractors. Still high demand. Casey, you mentioned the combines, and, and we've seen so many reports of the combine manufacturer, the new equipment side, just distorted by COVID and labor and all those other issues. As you see these combines piling up, are these new combines who are making their way to dealerships and they're not sold and they're hanging around, or are these used combines that have been traded in and those are what's starting to pile up? No, they're definitely used combines. There's some new combines that are being ordered for stock, but those are those are typically sold pretty quickly. But it's the it's the uh, the turn cycle that we're seeing uh, from the uh, from the new to the used, and and especially in that that uh, late model, low hour stuff. You know, one to two year old stuff. We're starting to see a little more supply uh, there than we'd seen in the past. Um, but oddly enough, if you go down to the other end of the trough there, where you're starting to see some stuff that might be five to seven years old um, with you know thousand fifteen hundred hours on it they're starting to see demand for that stuff which wasn't there two years ago so um kind of flip of the uh of the market there a little bit yeah that's interesting casey what's moving that demand down there on the lower side just just folks looking for something a little easier to maintain on the farm for that older equipment i think a little bit has to do with um 
we're kind of at a point now where the on-farm income isn't necessarily as high as it was back two years ago, and people have updated what they needed to update, and we're at a point now where I've got X dollars for a down payment. I've got X dollars worth of equity in my piece of equipment, and this works for my for my farm right now. We're starting to see some of the smaller um, farmers kind of come into the marketplace and start updating some of their stuff. So I think that's what you're seeing there a little bit is just as this market starts to settle down a little bit and prices are coming down a little bit from a retail perspective that some of the uh, higher, uh, older higher hour buyers are starting to come to the marketplace and, and start shopping a little bit. All right, Case. Well, that, that certainly makes some sense. You know, you mentioned this is one of those areas where perhaps just the numbers work. Those uh, producers with a little tighter margin maybe are, are finding things that work for them. I've got to imagine those are the same producers who are going to be hit with rising interest rate costs. Casey, how much of, it, of, uh, of interest rate concern is there in the equipment marketplace right now? You know, you, you, people talk about it. You hear people um, talk about what they're doing and what they're seeing. Um, but to be honest with you, Mike, I haven't seen it slow anything down yet. And it's it's on everyone's mind, and they're looking at, you know, I've got a 3% interest rate on this loan that I'm trading in, and I'm looking at, you know, anywhere between, depending on who it is, you know, 65 to 8% interest on the one I'm buying. So what makes sense? How am I going to keep my... Um, Payments the same, those kind of things from a cash flow perspective. So I think I think leases and just some various creative quote unquote financing is, is starting to make its way back into the uh, conversation, similar to what we saw, you know, 2014 through 2020. That makes sense. That makes sense. It was interesting to see the uh, the creative financing that came out in that time period. Casey, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of owner financing, as I can recall, when things were changing hands. Looking out there at the used equipment availability, Casey, are we still seeing most producers turn to auctions when it's time to liquidate that equipment, or are you seeing more of it come for uh, through the trade-in door? Uh, if they're going through a true liquidation where they're retiring or an estate sale or something like that, you, you are seeing that go more to the auction side of stuff. Um, some guys will maybe trade something in and, and might you know, trade an older tractor in on a on a newer, smaller tractor that they're going to keep to use around the farmstead that they're, that they're going to continue to live at, um, those kind of things. But primarily auction is still that, that main um, avenue for liquidation of whether retirement sales or whatever it might be. All right, and those prices, uh, I'm guessing, Casey, still staying up there at the auction uh, auction oh, yeah. block, rather. Yeah, auction value. You're starting. To see, you're still seeing some some pretty good prices out there for for stuff that goes on auction. Um, but I also think that's also representative of certain things. Um, when you start looking at where they are in the overall space as far as supply goes, planters and sprayers both are in really short supply. And if you see some one of those on a on an auction, it, you, you you see that reflection in the value. Yes, you do. Watching these online sales has, has certainly been interesting over the past year. Casey, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about Moving Iron is not just tracking the equipment, but also you work closely with dealerships across the country. So you have that insight into how things look on the dealership level. And I'm curious just about labor. We've had so much concern throughout the ag industry, keeping machinery running, keeping service and tech roles filled at dealerships. Any indication that's improving out in the countryside? You know, I think the technician side of it's always going to be in high demand. Anyone listening to this, if you if you're a young person and you're thinking about going to be a technician, go go to your local dealership, whether whoever that is, Case, John Deere, Atco, whomever that is, 
and talk with them about the opportunities they have for you about being a technician because there are some really great opportunities, um, you know, apprenticeship programs and those kind of things that are in place that can really catapult you in a direction that, that just, that's very profitable for you. So, um, you know, technicians are in strong demand. Technology people are in strong, in strong demand, you know, if you start looking at those kind of things. And, and it's just people that understand, um, you know, understand business. And that's, I think that's the, one of the biggest misconceptions about the farm equipment business is that it's, you know, it's not that, that sexy or whatever it might be. But you're dealing with a lot of technology and you're dealing with some really high-dollar equipment and you're, you're really helping people drive what they're, do, what they're doing every day on their farm from a business perspective. So it, it's not the, the same dealership experience that it was in the 1990s. It's a completely different thing. It is. And Casey, that was about the most understated sell, folks. They are begging for techs. If you're a young person looking to find direction in your future and you want to stay connected to agriculture, but you also want to work with cool new technologies, my goodness, and get paid for doing it, absolutely. Get in there, talk to those dealerships. We need all the help we can get out here in rural America. Casey, all of these things have come together over the past three years. We've seen the equipment world go through one of the biggest shakeups it's seen, certainly in my lifetime. How does it go from here? What should producers be thinking if we're not ready to trade, but my goodness, we know we're going to need to eventually. What are you watching long-term? What's changed in the used equipment industry? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing I'm paying attention to, Mike, has to do with the upgrade kits that we see coming down the, down the pike, whether it's on planters or, or sprayers, and, and what's that look like uh, when autonomous tractors come into play. So I think the big move right now that I'm seeing take place where more and more people are, are taking a look at the at the planter upgrade kits. So instead of spending just throwing out numbers here, instead of spending, you know, four hundred thousand dollars on a on a, a new a new planter, you know, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a new planter, you might only spend two hundred or two hundred and fifty thousand to do the upgrade. Uh, still using the same planter bar that you have, but you're you're putting on the the latest technology. And I think that kind of technology is going to continue to grow as we see things move into uh, into the future, and um, I, I also think manufacturers are looking at that as you know how many you know eight hundred thousand dollar widgets can we sell, but but how many two hundred thousand dollar widgets can we sell? And obviously the short answer is you can sell more two hundred thousand dollar ones than you can eight hundred thousand dollar ones. And I think that is going to be a driving factor when I start looking at the market moving forward. Absolutely. It makes sense. That would be a low cost way to update that machine, get the latest technological advances without maybe sure. having to write that scale of a check. Folks, we have been talking today with Casey Iron. He runs Moving Iron LLC. He's the host of the Moving Iron podcast, keeping folks up to date on what's happening throughout the ag equipment business. Casey, as always, we appreciate your insight here on AOA. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, bud. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to dig into the economics of the hog industry with Dr. Steve Meyer from Partners for Production Agriculture. Leave it right here. We'll have more AOA coming up in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. 
Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Why do you listen? I listen to radio to stay up on news, weather, current events around the local community. It keeps me up to date with everything going on in the world. It kind of just takes my mind off of the drive, getting some relevant information that's in time. It's always nice to know what's going on. Okay, what can I do? Well, listen to the what's coming up and you can plan your day. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at the market trade action. The soy complex is our unquestioned leader here as we work through Tuesday's session with strength in the veg oil contracts, giving support here to beans as we see bean oil higher. Palm oil, that was up 2.5% in the overnight trade action, giving us support as well. Now, overall, soybeans and corn also getting support from yesterday's crop progress report, which showed corn and bean ratings both slipping 3%. Corn now 61% good to excellent, while soybeans are rated 59% good to excellent as of Sunday. Now, while most of the Corn Belt is dry, the five-day forecast does show beneficial rainfall totals in the area with a focus on Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri. Now, the rains are expected around Thursday and Friday, and that's what we're going to be keeping our eyes on. But it's also going to be a lot of convective thunderstorms working through here over the next couple of weeks, and those are hard to predict. And, of course, they will leave some areas drier than desired while others turn wet. So a lot of things to keep our eyes on. We got the Consumer Price Index out on Tuesday. That rose 0.1% month-on-month in May, down from 0.4% in April, and down from analyst expectations of 0.2%. It is also Fed Week on Wall Street. We're going to be waiting to see what the Federal Reserve has to say with their updated monetary policy statement tomorrow afternoon. The VIX trading near 15 here this morning. Over in livestock, we are moderately lower in cattle and hog futures. Had a really strong day in hogs on the day Tuesday, but not getting that continued support here, it appears, with most deferred contracts down about a dollar. Also live at feeder cattle trading 50 cents to a dollar lower. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here today, but we're going to look back at last week, June 6th, 7th, and 8th, in Des Moines, Iowa, saw the 35th annual World Pork Expo get together. Frankly, I was struck last week by the change in attitudes from World Pork Expo 2022 to World Pork Expo 2023. There has been a phenomenal slide in profitability and in profit margins throughout the hog industry. It was on the minds of producers as they were touring the Iowa State Fairgrounds, talking with exhibitors and market experts on top of all of the more recent concerns proposition 12 in california export slowdowns that the market has been watching all of these were under discussion and i wanted to pick it up with dr steve meyer of partners for production agriculture dr meyer thanks for joining us today mike mike it's great to be with you thank you for inviting us you bet, Steve. Let's let's talk for listeners here who aren't involved in the hog industry. The last six months, Steve, we have seen an incredible reversal in hog prices, last nine months perhaps. Can you fill us in? What's changed from summer 2022 to summer 2023 in hog production? Well, uh, a number of things have changed, but the big one on the price side is that we've had a significant reduction in the level of pork demand in the United States, it's mainly domestic man, <clears throat> and that has drug, drug down the demand for wholesale product and for hogs. And in retrospect, it's pretty clear what has happened here. We, we enjoyed two record years in 2021 and 22 for pork demand in the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, at the time, we knew that there were a lot of money being uh, thrown, thrown into the economy in the form of stimulus payments and increased SNAP benefits and a number of things. Uh, and, and when those were withdrawn, when we went through all that money and the increased savings that they drove, drove and those kinds of things, in mid-2022, we saw a significant reduction in demand. Now, this demand that we're facing right now is at about the same levels as pre-2021. So I wouldn't classify it as bad port demand. It's just not nearly as good as 21 and 22. And so that's what's really driven the prices lower here. This is not a supply-driven situation. We're slightly up on slaughter for this year, but part of that is some accounting for pigs that got passed around the first of the year because of that snowstorm back before Christmas. And so I, I don't think this is a supply-driven situation. It's not a capacity-driven situation like we had in those couple of months in the fall of 1998. It's strictly lower demand that's caused uh, these lower hog prices. And that, of course, is put against the background of a backdrop of very near record cost of production, and it's causing a huge amount of red ink in the pork industry. And how's the industry responding? As you mentioned, this slide has been very, very quick. Dr. Meyer, what are we seeing with sow numbers here across the country? Well, the March hogs and figure sports still had the sow herd up by a half percent from a year ago. Now, we've got the survey for the June Hogs and Pigs report in the field right now. I mean, uh, NASA's is uh, running that survey of producers, and we'll have a Hogs and Pigs report on June 29th. Um, I, I think it's going to show a slight reduction in the South herd, but we really haven't got into a real reaction to this yet. Uh, I think we're early in the process of that, and uh, uh, I'm not sure it'll show up much in the June Hogs and Pigs report. Judging by South slaughter numbers over the last quarter, uh, it doesn't look like we've made a real big dent in this to cut back those hog numbers as we go forward. 
All right. So hog supply still sticking in there roughly where it was in 2022. Demand roughly where it was back in 2020. I'm curious if we could be heading into a scenario where the supply crunch gets us. Dr. Meyer, I'm hearing reports, Wyndham, Minnesota, potential plant closure, Ontario, Quebec, we've got plants closing. Could a supply threat be in front of us for hog processors? Well, I don't think so. I think we still have enough capacity here in the U.S. And the closure of that plant in Quebec, that's going to cause some problems in Quebec for sure. And it will force some hogs, I think, south into the United States. But, uh, you know, all the mills announced that they're going to reduce their slaughter about a million head over a year. Well, that's less than 1% of our, our supply here. So even if all of those pigs find their way south, uh, it wouldn't be devastating. Uh, the Wyndham plant closure is a concern, but I think we've still got enough capacity to handle the hogs that are coming at us in the fourth quarter of this year, and that's, of course, the critical time period. Our, my concern on that side is that packers, you know, this is not one of those things where producers have lost money and packers have made money. Packers have lost money actually probably longer than producers have here, and so we've got some packers that uh, their performance has not been very good in the last year either and so uh, we're a little bit concerned about you know uh, the performance of those plants uh, but I think we're going to be okay through the fourth quarter of this year and then uh, I believe we're going to get into some supply reductions in 2024 uh, that will leave us okay on the capacity side so um, yeah all of these things are concerning and they could go a number of ways as they play out but that's what I'm expecting. That makes sense. It is concerning. And the number of available options for this market to move is is huge, given the variables at play right now in the hog market. Dr. Meyer, I'm sure you're kind of sick of talking about this issue after World Pork Expo this week. But I'd like to talk through how the cash market could react as we see Proposition 12 get moved into effect. How is that going to well, impact cash hog trade here in this country? Well, Do in we my know? opinion, that's there's yeah, well, we don't know very quick uh, for for sure. What we know is that uh, they are that Prop 12 is basically going to go into effect on J July 2nd. They're having some webinars now to try to uh, share with people what's going to happen there. They've been very very unclear about what's going to happen to existing inventories of pork of non-compliant pork in California. Uh, they've not said, you know, can you sell it? Can you not sell it? They won't. They won't give you a straight answer on that. Uh, but uh, you know, it's our opinion that we have about half as much product as California has consumed in the past that's going to be compliant with Prop 12 uh, at the beginning of July. Maybe not even half. And that means that the other half of that 14% of our consumption in the United States is going to have to find a home somewhere else. So I don't think you see anything positive in this. And in fact, I see a pretty negative impact on the cutout value, and that's going to be put pressure on hog prices, even more pressure on hog prices as we go through the second half of the year. Now, you can change these things quicker than what, obviously, we can change the output of pigs. I mean, you know, the sows being bred right now, those pigs will come to market uh, 11 months from now or 10 months, yeah, uh, 10, 11 months from now. So... We have a very long planning horizon on the production side, and these other factors change much more quickly. And so, I'm I, I was um, I was pretty Debbie Downer this week at Pork, Pork Expo. I I don't see a lot of signs for short-term relief from these situations. 
Uh, probably the best thing that could happen for us is get some rain in the Midwest and raise a really good corn crop and push these costs down some. But even best case scenario on that, I don't see those costs going below $80. And there's hardly any futures contract on the board right now that would provide a profit of that. So uh, this is a very serious situation that, um, you know, rain in the Midwest to get these costs down and get started cutting back supplies in order to push prices up. I, I think that's the two solutions we have to have. There is some optimism about exports, Mike. Um, you know, we had some pretty good export data yesterday on the product weight basis. Uh, it shows that we're up, I think, 11 or 12% for the year, and that's good. But that's not enough to make a difference on this, uh, to make up the difference on this, this profitability situation. So uh, we'll take all the positive things we can get, but we need more than what we're seeing right now. Steve, I'm wondering if we can we can pick your brain here. Your global connections um, over in China. You know, we're, we're hearing off and on reports about ASF perhaps rebounding in that country. We're hearing reports of of culling of of, cat, of hogs aggressively on the ground in China. How much of any of this is true, and and what do we know from the ground in China with regard to their their pork production? Well, the answer is we don't know much for sure. Um, but what we're hearing is that they have had a rebound of ASF cases. And this is problematic because most of these ASF cases now, as we understand it, are being driven by, uh, by strains of ASF that were actually propagated through illegal vaccines in China. They weren't supposed to be making vaccines, but everybody tried to make one, or a lot of people did. And those strains have turned out to be actually infectious. Now, they're not like the original strain of ASF. The original strain of ASF spread slowly and was very deadly. These are spread much quicker and aren't necessarily deadly, but they're certainly negative to productivity. And so uh, there's still a response of when you start seeing these, you start culling pigs. And, and as we know, ASF doesn't affect people, so those pigs can move into the food supply. You don't have to destroy them. Uh, but uh, there's a strong incentive to get them sold before they die. And so uh, that's we think that's the reason that has seen most, so much pressure on Chinese prices right now at a time when we would have thought they would have been rebounding, and that is uh, the re, kind of the, the, the return of ASF problems out in the countryside. My big concern on China long-term is after all of this, after ASF, after COVID, after all these things, What's demand for pork going to look like in China? And I think the evidence so far is that we've seen a significant negative impact on pork demand in China. And if that demand goes away, then how much can you ever count on them to be a real uh, place to ship product? And finally, you know, as much as we want to say, well, China could solve all this, you have to remember we still have a 25% punitive tariff on U.S. product going into China. And uh, that is a huge roadblock. Uh, for us growing our exports there significantly. And again, I just don't think exports are going to be enough to save us. Lots of hurdles ahead for those hog industry participants. We wish them the best, folks. We've been talking with Dr. Steve Meyer from Partners for Production Agriculture today. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. You bet, Mike. Good day. Folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? 
they've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with John Griffith, Executive Vice President of Ag Business with CHS on his recent congressional testimony about agricultural trade. John, why is this important to U.S. farmers and CHS owners? Well, CHS, as the nation's largest farmer-owned cooperative, we feel it's our obligation to have a voice on behalf of agriculture and on behalf of our owners. You advocated for additional funds for market access and market development programs. Why? Yeah, these programs are crucially important to the development of new markets and new customers. And it's work that the industry cannot do alone. Sometimes it takes up to 10 years to develop markets or develop customer relationships. And the MAP funds and the foreign market development programs assist in that regard with the funding to allow for industry as, as well as nonprofits and associations to do some of that work, and it's been proven to work very effectively over the long term. Are we seeing success then, I guess, is my next question with these programs, John? Yeah, we absolutely are. And, and one of the examples I used in the, in the testimony in, in D.C. was a, a specific example around Vietnam with about that 10-year time horizon where the customer engaged and the MAP funds were deployed to help with the education and development for that market in Vietnam. And it subsequently resulted in constant growth in U.S. agricultural products going to Vietnam. John, what message did you want policymakers to take away from your comments during the hearing? The focus of this, this hearing was on international trade, that export business and the continually developing that business helps bring market access and consistency and competitiveness of pricing to our nation's farmers. That's John Griffith, Executive Vice President of Ag Business at CHS. John, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. 
Do you know how much one stalk of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We like to keep track of what's developing globally around the world with regard to demand to the commodities that we grow and produce here across American agriculture. And one thing or a couple of things we do really well in American agriculture is growing corn and soybeans. And we do it on ground that has by and large been farm production ground for a very long time. Now, that is not always the case around the world. You look at countries like Brazil, Indonesia, other countries in Southeast Asia and throughout the, the rainforest regions, a lot of additional crop ground can come at the expense of those forested ranges. We've seen this with the Amazon, alleged deforestation happening to raise both cattle and soybeans in that country. And now there is some official legal pushback coming from the European Union. On Tuesday, earlier today, the EU Parliament voted to pass a law. They call it the deforestation law, and it would prevent companies from selling into the EU market coffee, beef, soy, rubber, some palm oil derivatives that are linked to deforestation around the world. Now, the way the EU is going to enforce this law is they are going to require companies who are selling these products, coffee, beef, and soy being the biggest ones, to verify the sourcing of those commodities. Are these coming from a forested area? Yes or no. And importantly for the law in the EU, it states the the products must not come from ground that was forested prior to 2020. So they're making 2020 the line in the sand. Any forest that was cut down to convert to crop production prior to that would be allowed to be sold into the EU. Anything that is cut down after that would not be allowed to be sold into the EU. Now, this law goes into effect today. Environmentalists in the European Union are very excited about it. They believe this is going to help consumers in those in those countries source goods that don't, don't come from rainforest areas. However, Brazil, Indonesia, Colombia, those countries that are likely to be most impacted by this law say these are burdensome and costly regulations. The certification is difficult to maintain. There doesn't seem to be much of a system spanning multiple countries as of yet to allow these countries to comply with this law. And this means that investors over in the EU are looking at pulling some of their investments with consumer goods companies. Remember, this law, EU law is going to apply to people selling those products to the public in the EU. 
So these big institutional investors are saying, hey, if our companies could be hit with heavy fines for selling products from deforested areas they didn't know were deforested, that is an investment risk, and we're going to look to unloan. We've seen seven, excuse me, eight major institutional shareholders have announced they are talking to consumer good makers about this deforestation law, and they're considering whether or not they'll need to change their investment profile. These laws could have big impacts around the world. Remember, if Brazilian beef and soy is not eligible for shipment into the EU, American beef and soy should be able to comply under most of the interpretations of this brand new law. We've got some other big news coming in the global grain trading world. There is a merger that has been discussed. It has been rumored for about the past two months. Early on Tuesday, the details were announced for Bungie's takeover of Viterra. I should say a merger of Viterra. We are seeing this take place. Bungie was the largest corn and soybean exporter out of Brazil in 2020. Viterra's third largest corn exporter and seventh largest soybean shipper. Together, these companies cover about 23, almost 24% of Brazilian corn exports in 2022, and they sold just about 21% of Brazil soybean exports. The deal, as we understand it so far today, has Bungie and Glencore merging. Together, these two companies will total about $34 billion in agricultural trading proceeds, and this is going to bring Bungie who will be the, the partner at the end of the deal, to a closer to a global scale, similar to that of ADM and Cargill. Shares of Bungie down so far this morning. They're off 2.5%. They've been bouncing around, trading at around 91.45. The deal, as we understand it so far, is that Viterra shareholders are going to get 65.6 million shares of Bungie stock. That's worth about $6.2 billion. Then in order to sweeten the pot, Bungie will be throwing in $2 billion in additional cash. And that's not all. Bungie has also said they're going to assume $9.8 billion worth of Viterra's debt. And that is all according to the statement that was released uh, this morning. Now, Bungie is already the world's largest oilseed processor. Viterra's crushing bids business would enable Bungie to grow even more, which means that in the countries where both Viterra and Bungie are large players, and the two that are jumping out immediately are Canada and Argentina, it's expected that this deal is going to face a lot more regulatory certainty, particularly in those two countries. And this is going to, uh, to continue to develop over the next couple of weeks. We'll keep an update on it. As of right now, Bungie's management team, led by CEO Greg Heckman, will be taking over the company once it is a combined entity uh, here whenever the deal gets completed. On the other broad market news, we had some inflation data out this morning. The government released both the CPI index, which is the full basket of consumer goods and price levels out in the countryside. They also released the core CPI, which is that full consumer basket, but they removed energy and food, two things that are very volatile. And the idea is the core then gives us a better picture of what's happening with inflation. Now, the core CPI was higher. It was up four-tenths of a percent. Now, that's the third straight months we've seen that core number grow. It is in line with uh, economists' expectations here heading into the report. The overall CPI, including food and energy prices, actually increased by a smaller one-tenth of a percent, largely on the strength of lower gasoline prices at the pump. 
That is good news there. That, as we heard from Dale Durkholz earlier in the program, could be enough evidence to convince Fed Chair Jerome Powell that the hiking regime that the Fed has been engaged on with that overnight Fed funds rate could, in fact, come to a pause. We'll get that detail later on this week as the Fed gets together and they'll release their minutes indicating whether or not we'll see additional interest rate hikes in the months to come. Folks, thanks for listening to AOA. Tomorrow on the program, we'll check in with Dan Halstrom of the U.S. Meat Export Federation about what they're watching over on the West Coast as port slowdowns accelerate. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you tomorrow for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S., so trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world that in 2021, Beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion. Ralph, that's a huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023? Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. Pork products are moving well. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next Monthly Grind on AOA. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.